This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. My name is Brian Herrera, and I'm a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows. And Stinky Lulu Says is where I get my say about what I see. In this episode, I reflect on what it's like to teach a college course on 21st century Latinx drama when all the theaters and all the colleges have been shut down. Before we begin, though, an aside, I should offer a word of context for those listeners who might be joining this podcast from beyond the orange bubble of Princeton University. I decided to reboot this podcast, Stinky Lulu says, in response to the events of March 2020. That was when the university where I teach, Princeton, like most institutions of higher learning across the country, somewhat abruptly decided to stop offering face-to-face pedagogy and to pivot to remote instruction for the duration of the spring 2020 semester, all in order to help flatten the curve of the COVID-19 pandemic. All of this happened during midterms week, when I was in the middle of leading a course on 21st century Latinx drama, a course in which about a dozen Princeton undergraduates and I were reading and discussing plays, attending and discussing theatrical performances, and tracking year by year the sophisticated research question of where the Latinos at in the production seasons of major New York theaters in each year of the first 20 years of this century. And while we were doing all of this, we were also thinking broadly about what 21st century Latinx drama might help us understand about the contemporary U.S. theater as a social and cultural ecosystem, an ecosystem that is at once sincerely committed to principles, practices, and priorities of inclusion, even as it operates within a constellation of traditions, protocols, and practicalities rooted in exclusion. This was the work of our course, studying this defining paradox of the American theater through the particular history of 21st century Latinx drama. So, as I contemplated how to take everything online and and also how to maintain the integrity of the deeply collaborative process of my course thus far, I quickly realized that I was not alone in confronting this dilemma. Remember, I work between two industries, higher education and the not-for-profit theater, two industries that are defined by the practice and by the promise of coming together with people you don't necessarily know so that you, alongside all these other random people, might somehow experience something transformative, perhaps something even life-changing. But if we can't be in a room together, how do we do what we do? Remarkably, And perhaps because social media is so aptly suited for this moment of social distance, I marveled as I scrolled through Twitter and Facebook at how passionately my colleagues in both higher ed and the theater leapt into the uncertainty of those first dizzying days, how they worked with intelligence, humanity, and creativity to engage the myriad challenges caused by this shutdown. But this should come as no surprise. This is exactly what principled teachers, engaged theater makers, humane administrators do. We work within often rigid limitations to create opportunities for others to come together so that they might access these transformative experiences. So upon some reflection, I decided 
Um, and after consulting with my students, I should say, I decided to reactivate this podcast as one small way to open my course's interrogation of the theaters and of higher ed's defining paradox, of inclusive ideals within an exclusive institution, of how I might open this course to those beyond Princeton's orange bubble, to use this podcast as a way to open our course to other folks, other students, teachers, theater makers, combinations thereof, to anyone really who might be interested to listen as we consider the horizons of theatrical possibility and professional opportunity charted by Latinx dramatists in the first two decades of this century. And as we also reflect together on how the many shocks of the shutdown have highlighted the many and mostly unacknowledged fissures of privilege running throughout both higher education and the contemporary theater. In each of these new episodes of this old podcast, um, of which I expect there to be six, maybe, one for each remaining week of the semester, I expect each episode to offer the kind of contextualizing comments I offered, usually spontaneously, in the real-time shared airspace of our weekly class meetings in the weeks before the shutdown. These pop-up mini-lectures typically addressed in roughly equal measure uh, questions of form, content, and audience raised by the work of Latinx dramatists, and also questions of access, opportunity, and impact activated by our consideration of the professional theater ecosystem. My in-class comments were usually offered in reply to student queries. They were more responsive than prescriptive. And I will be interested to learn whether I can sustain my commitment to responsive pedagogy in something like a podcast. So we'll see how this experiment unfolds. Because here we go. That was quite the aside. Now, back to our program. In this episode of Stinky Lulu Says, I will offer some comment on the reverberations of the COVID-19 shutdown within the theater industry as I ask one of my favorite questions, must the show go on? Then I will offer some perspective on Isaac Gomez's 2019 play, The Way She Spoke, as produced by Audible.com, a play that didn't get a lot of notice in theatrical circles when it premiered at New York City's Manetta Lane Theater last summer, but which reads and plays somewhat differently at a moment like the one we find ourselves in now, when so many are asking some version of the question, what form might theater take when we can't go to the theater? Must the show go on is among my favorite questions to ask of contemporary theater making. I love it because it confronts an abiding article of faith within the American theater. Of course the show must go on, the thinking goes. We have invested so much so much time, money, reputation, space, whatever. The cost of stopping would be too great. The theater's failure to concede failure distills what I think is a coercive commingling of pressure and precarity, which usually underwrites a usually uninterrogated hierarchy of theatrical values. But the pleasure of a provocation like Must the Show Go On is premised on its presumptive impossibility. Never in my wildest contrarian ruminations did I imagine that this question, Must the Show Go On, would be rendered moot by a series of global events that made the show not going on a new and widespread norm. True, amidst all the material uncertainty stirred by the shutdown, 
the very real risk of illness in the society without comprehensive access to effective or affordable health care, the economic impact of jobs in all sectors disappearing almost overnight, the fears, the chaos, and the instabilities wrought by an erratic governmental response, etc., 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 at these I mean, all these very real life and death concerns might rightly remind us that the problems of theater makers might not be all that big a deal right now, that we might have bigger things to think about than a canceled play. And to this, I might say, sure, that totally makes sense. But to this, I might also say the theater is an industry where thousands upon thousands of workers are now without jobs and also mostly without access to health care and often also without access to the bailouts and subsidies and unemployment benefits being extended to other displaced workers in this current crisis. And I might also add, the theater is a place where artists create real life pretend worlds so that we all might survive the real life actual world a little bit easier. And this is only to say that the shutdown is hitting the theater hard in perhaps particular ways. And it's worth noting the particularity of those ways. And because our course has paid particular attention to Latinx dramatists, I'd like to lift some of the particular impacts for dramatists in terms of wages, opportunity, and access. First, unemployment benefits. Just a few days ago, a coalition of stage unions met with stage producers to broker a deal to continue wage payments and healthcare contributions for stage workers now out of work. But it's important to note that these benefits, like most proposed governmental relief efforts, are designed to help displaced employees. But most dramatists are not employees, but independent contractors working for a fee, not a wage or a salary. And as independent contractors, dramatists are therefore typically exempted from bailouts like those we're hearing about these days. Additionally, over the past week or so, some well-known and well-compensated playwrights have reported instances where major not-for-profit theaters actually asked those playwrights to return their fee for productions that had been canceled. So here again, we see the all-too-familiar phenomenon wherein the weird idea that artists are not workers fortifies the weirder idea that artists don't deserve to be paid. Next, lost opportunity. In a recent article posted on the website of American Theater Magazine, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Martina Mayok reflected on the ambivalences stirred by the cancellation of what was to have been the world premiere production of her play Sanctuary City. Theater is ephemeral. People gather, Mayok noted. But if there's not a review and people haven't seen it, it's almost as if it didn't happen. This kind of erasure in the theater, not being reviewed, not being seen, not being remembered, this idea of it's almost as if it didn't happen, I mean, this is not unique to this moment. But the shutdown does underscore the peculiar ways that creative productivity is measured. Can you put the performance on your resume if it didn't happen? Some of you may have heard me tell the story of Maria Irene Fornes, who was the first Latina playwright to have her single authored play produced on Broadway in 1965. But but because the play closed before opening night, and because the play thus never got reviews, the commodity logics of theater history doesn't count Fornes' Broadway premiere as having happened at all. 
and so Fornes lost claim on that historic first. Perhaps because I am both a historian and an advocate, the last few weeks have reminded me of Fornes's lost first, and those thoughts stoked my curiosity about the Latinx plays caught in this gap of the shutdown. So just the other night, when I should have been working on this podcast, I started compiling a list of Latina and Latino and Latinx-authored plays shut down in response to the 2020 COVID crisis, COVID-19 crisis. These were plays that were in the midst of or in preparation for a major production. For the purposes of my list, a major production described any benchmark public staging of a play, which might include professional, college, community, or festival productions. I crowdsourced input for this list from the members of the Latinx Theater Commons Facebook group, and within 24 hours, my list, which I titled Our Lost Season of Latinx Drama, documented more than 40 productions by more than 30 Latinx writers or writing teams, all of which had been closed, canceled, or postponed at theaters of all kinds across the United States. This lost Latinx season covers the entirety of the U.S. theatrical ecosystem, including Broadway, Off-Broadway, and major regional productions alongside university, festival, and community-based theaters, confirming that the full spectrum of Latino theater making in the United States has been hit and hit hard by this shutdown. And finally, access. One of the most remarkable things to witness over the last few weeks has been to see, as the entire world has taken its work online, that so too has the American theater. It didn't even take a week before theater organizations across the country, large organizations and small, independent artists alongside some of theater's most visible stars, they all found ways to take their theatrical work online. I began actively tracking this trend as I readied myself to take this class online, which is why about two weeks ago I started building my own list of streaming contemporary Latinx drama, a collection of links to widely available streaming U.S. Latinx authored works for the stage that are freely or widely accessible in complete or near complete form. Because I built this list for this class, my list prioritizes works originally authored or staged in the long 21st century beginning about 1994, and those works written to be performed in English or bilingually. The first section gathers works produced or adapted for radio and audiobook and podcast presentation with a second section that collects works captured with full visual and sound. Even though I began building the list for the purposes of this class, I soon realized it might be useful to other educators, to other students, artists, and audiences, so I shared it online. And based on the number of Google Doc avatars I've seen as I've updated the list every day, it is my conservative guess that my list of streaming contemporary Latinx drama has been accessed at least 1,000 times over the last 10 days. But it's not just my little list. Creative ways to access theater digitally have been popping up seemingly everywhere. Playwrights wrote monologues for actors to perform on Instagram as part of the 24-hour plays viral monologues project. Celebrities like Seth Rudetsky and Rosie O'Donnell created Zoom talk shows to stream on YouTube. Major critics like Terry Teachout of the Wall Street Journal announced their plans to review streaming versions of productions. But perhaps most remarkably, Actors' Equity, the union representing professional actors and stage managers, broke their long-standing precedent and began working proactively with theatrical producers to allow theater patrons to transfer their existing tickets, or in some cases purchase new ones, to watch streaming video captures of now-canceled productions. 
Some of the shows that became differently accessible due to the shift in practice were shows that members of our class had already attended, like On Guard Art's production of Andrea Tom's Fandango for Butterflies and Coyotes. Others were shows we were slated to see, like Rattlestick Theater's production of Rendara Santiago's Siblings play. And so others were shows our class would have never been able to make it to see, like Cincinnati Playhouse's production of Karen Zacharias's Destiny of Desire or the Dallas Theater Center's production of Jose Cruz Gonzalez's Mariachi Girl. But even so, as exciting as these streaming video captures are, they were only viable for a very small handful of shows, ones that were running right as the shutdown happened. And they were available only through very, very idiosyncratic channels for very limited windows of time. I mean, I've pretty much had my finger on the pulse of all of this for the last couple of weeks, and it was tricky even for me to keep track of which shows were available, when and to whom, and for how long. All of which highlights the ways that even in this moment of unprecedented access to high-quality recordings of live contemporary theater, even for digital theater, you often still have to be in the know to be able to get in the door. Plus, given the rigid limitations on the distribution of most of these recorded shows, which as per the agreement with Actors' Equity are strictly limited in the duration of their availability, this emergency gesture to make theater more accessible is, as always, constrained by theater's long-standing practices and protocols of exclusivity. So as I myself struggle to keep track of all that's going on in the present moment, will these artists get paid? Will the fact of their work be remembered even if it didn't get to happen? And for those whose work was able to be experienced through the magic of digital streaming, will that work become ever more accessible or will it remain as ephemeral as live theater itself? These questions make this as good a moment as any to shift our attention to the example of Latinx drama I'd like to think together about this week. Isaac Gomez's The Way She Spoke, as produced by Audible.com, developed as a live theatrical presentation at New York City's Manetta Lane Theater in the summer of 2019, before being released as an Audible original audiobook in October of that year. By way of reminder for my students and by way of introduction for those listening for perhaps the first time, I should let you know that I will offer my thoughts on Isaac Gomez's play by following the practice that we have developed in class. It's a thing where I pop up to offer some contextualizing asides that I hope might inform your consideration of the play. And as I do, I'm going to track some ways to think about a play, ways that I hope might be relevant for us as we encounter a unique performance text like the way she spoke. Remember that a play, perhaps unlike most other forms of writing, is always already operating on three different levels. First, a play is, of course, an object of literary creation, a work of literary art. Second, a play is, as my graduate advisor Joseph Roach liked to say, a blueprint or performance, a necessarily incomplete collection of what are might be considered prompts from a particular writer addressing an array of potential collaborators charged with ultimately staging the play in performance. And third, a play is a cultural document, 
an object documenting its own cultural and material conditions of creation. A glimpse into not only the world of the play, but also the world in which the playwright moved as they made that play. So every play is at once a literary text, a blueprint for performance, and a cultural document. A Latinx play is, of course, all of these things, but what makes a Latinx play a Latinx play? One answer is that any play written by someone who is Latino, Latina, or Latinx qualifies as a Latina, Latino, or Latinx play, and I I will totally grant you that. At the same time, I do offer three main criteria for thinking through how a Latinx-authored play might enter the tradition of Latinx dramaturgy. You might uh, those of you in the class might remember the triangle I drew on the whiteboard that one day, the three sides of the Latinx play triangle, as it were. These are the three things that, in my view, make a Latinx play. They are an engaged social consciousness, uh, an adventurous approach to theatrical style and form, and a clear communication in the text that Latinos are prioritized among the possible intended audiences for the work in performance. And remember, it's not that all three have to be there in equal measure, but rather only that there needs to be an evident nod of some kind to each for me to be confident that the work in question is engaging the tradition of Latinx drama as it has evolved over the last six decades. So I'll offer my preliminary comments on Isaac Gomez's The Way She Spoke by considering each of these criteria, beginning with the play's form, moving to its social consciousness, and resolving with a discussion of its intended audience. And to begin, The Way She Spoke opens really interesting questions about theatrical form. It's a performance text built from actual interviews, developed through techniques of live performance toward a final form, its final form as audio play or audio drama, a form that I admit I initially considered something of a novelty, but which now I realize might be a necessity for theater makers in the 21st century. But first, some context. Beginning in 2018, Audible.com began a pioneering new initiative to develop a number of original plays driven by language and voice as part of the company's commitment to elevating uh, listening experiences through performance and vocal storytelling. That's their language. And so in addition to an annual commission for emerging playwrights, Audible also got into the theater producing game, partnering with a few established New York theaters for live stage presentations of selected works in advance of their recording and release as audiobook. This method marked something of a departure in practice in terms of audiobook production, because really for most audiobooks, the performer's work happens the way it does in most film or television settings. The performer does a lot of independent advanced preparation so that they can efficiently and effectively record a performance in a concentrated sequence of often grueling days. The Audible.com model departs from the practice a little bit by developing these audio plays as scripts for performance, not simply as pre-existing texts that are to be read aloud after the fact. And they do this by sometimes involving fully rehearsed theatrical productions, produced often but not always in partnership with important important off-Broadway theaters, and often presented before live audiences in a full theatrical run. Audible.com's approach to script development both builds upon and departs from the conventional pathway of script development in the contemporary theater. Indeed, these plays are not designed to be blueprints for future performance necessarily, as scripts that might be read or performed in other theaters around the country. 
but rather they are designed to be particular objects, streaming audio drama available exclusively to the paid subscribers of the audible.com platform. Fun fact, um, the former literary manager of Princeton McCarter's Theater left that gig in 2017 to become the producer of new play development at Audible. She's now a senior producer there. And I just mentioned this just for local reference for the Princeton folk in the house, but also as a way to sort of think about the integration of this uh, mode of development of performance text. I might note that I am fortunate to have experienced the way she spoke in both the theater and as in its form as an audio drama. And when I think about the play's explorations of dramatic form, I will note that what some reviewers call the play's meta-theatrical frame, the scenario in which an actress reads an unfamiliar script aloud before an unseen playwright as she steps into and out of the narrative reality of the story being told, that device operated in fascinatingly different ways in the audio drama in comparison to what it did on stage. Now, the simplest way I can say it in its theatrical iteration, the play's shift between characters sometimes destabilized my confidence that I knew what was happening. Which is, I think, part of how the play's form wrangles with our desire for narrative resolution. This, is, this isn't, after all, not a murder mystery, but, a, but rather a mystery play about murder. But where on stage it was tempting for me to be certain that my discomfort with the uncertainty of the character shifts was a fault of the play, listening to the audio drama, I realized that that destabilization was what led to my feeling truly startled and deeply unsettled by the play in ways that confirmed not only the play's deft artistry in terms of dramatic form, but also in ways that activated my own personal reckoning with what is the play's refrain. This is Isaac Gomez invoking the play's refrain as he comments on what he hopes the audible.com audience might get from the experience of the way she spoke. What does it mean for them to listen? And then what does it mean for them to know? Because once you know, you can't unknow. This play is by no means the first performance text to invite audiences to know about the women of Juarez, to use performance to activate awareness, empathy, and action around the phenomenon of femicide in Ciudad Juarez. Indeed, the way she spoke is not even Isaac Gomez's only play on the subject. This play stands instead in tacit dialogue with Gomez's La Ruta, an ensemble play with music that elaborates on the disappearance of Yoli's daughter Brenda, a story told more obliquely in the way she spoke. But among the many plays and films and novels and scholarly examination of the disappearing daughters of Juarez, the way she spoke is striking for, the what, for what it does not try to do. The way she spoke does not try to explain or to adjudicate. It does not try to build awareness or even empathy. Rather, the way she spoke uses the dramatic vehicle to activate consciousness, just as it is for Isaac, the unseen playwright who is also the sometimes narrator, and just as it is for the actress reading the script for the first time, the play demands that we, the play's audience, not seek dramatic resolution or theatrical satisfaction from the play, but rather that we join this actor and this playwright in their deeply unsettling confrontation with the enormity and incomprehensibility of the phenomenon of femicide, not only in Ciudad Juarez, but also well beyond.
It wasn't what Yoli said that changed me forever. It was the way she said it, spoke it. The desperation in her voice, yet alarmingly calm, as if scripted and spoken a thousand times before. No tears, but a mother grieving all the same. Why didn't she cry? I sat there the whole time, hearing her words, seeing her face, and they didn't match. These words, as spoken by Kate Del Castillo as the onstage actress and voicing the offstage playwright, capture one of the most compelling ways the audience chooses to engage its audience. Perhaps notably, many of the critics commenting on the theatrical iteration of the way she spoke faltered either the play or the production or both for its metatheatricality, its use of a play within the play device. For many, this device took them out of the story being told rather than inviting them in. Many many faulted the play for the destabilizing distance this device created, especially the distance it marked between the audience and the stories being told. The New Yorker called the play performative, and the New York Times described it as, quote, an aching, outraged work of vigil, protest, and inquiry, albeit one whose human drama remains at a strange remove. And as is so often the case for me when engaging mainstream theatrical reviews of Latinx plays, I just find it fascinating that in their use of words like performative and vigil and remove, these critics highlight the architectural strengths of this Latinx play by misrecognizing them as weakness. I mean, most commentators, both professional reviewers and show show score observers alike, faulted the play for its refusal to allow the audience to be immersed in the story. But the way she spoke promises no immersion. That's cued by the metatheatrical device. It constantly takes us out, refuses our inclination to be absorbed. The way she spoke enacts its narrator's naive encounter with the vast enormity of incomprehensible trauma, thereby deftly forbidding their or our consumption of that trauma as spectacle or commodity. It takes us out so we understand what what we're seeing. Remember what we in class reckoned with when we considered the American dirt controversy at the semester's outset? The commodification of trauma versus how, what are the artistic ways to sort of activate awareness about trauma? The way she spoke exploits the ritual of theater in a churchly way, as it demands an audience for these mothers and their suffering and provides no answers for, for anyone. And on this count, the only review that seems to clock this also happens to be the only review I'm aware of offered by a Latino critic, Jose Solis in America Magazine, who offered perhaps the most clarifying commentary, for me at least, when he wrote, and I'm quoting Solis here, The power of the way she spoke lies in how it is theater is activism, theater is history chronicle, but most surprisingly, theater as prayer. The hope that someone will listen keeps playwright Isaac Gomez actor Kate Del Castillo, and the women of Juarez in constant vigil. By way of closing, I'll offer a word or two about citations before offering some thoughts about next steps. Some of the foundational arguments informing my comments in this episode have appeared previously in very different form. 
My criteria for what makes a Latinx play are elaborated in an essay that appears in the spring 2019 issue of Aslan, a journal of Chicano studies. I originally shared my thoughts on the imperative to take everything online as part of the forum, Artists in a Time of Global Pandemic, which streamed on HowlRound TV on March 16, 2020 and remains accessible on HowlRound.com. Interested listeners can access the lists I mentioned, streaming contemporary Latinx drama and our lost season of Latinx plays, through the 21 LTX tab on my Princeton University Scholar page. A direct link to that tab is also the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile page, at StinkyLulu. And if you have something you would like to say about what Stinky Lulu says, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at StinkyLulu, or via email at StinkyLulu at gmail.com. Because truly, as I continue with this podcast pedagogy experiment, I will rely upon the questions, comments, and provocations of all my listeners, those enrolled in my course, along with all the rest of y'all. I will truly look forward to hearing from you. As I close, I'll offer the words of an esteemed colleague and treasured friend, Professor Robin Bernstein of Harvard University. She says, Our temporary distancing reminds us of the permanent truth that we are all connected. Thanks for listening. And until next time, as you maintain your social distance, do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds. And as you do, I invite you to join me in my belief that so long as we keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward through this. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says. <laughs>